Okay, go ahead and make sure your name's at the top. Change with somebody else. Um, bonus quiz, bonus quiz. Aren't you excited? Bonus quiz, you're welcome. Uh, true or false, the actual words of Christ make up more than half the material in the Gospels. True. That is true. That is true. I, I actually, that surprised me. I did not realize that. that that's makes sense when you think about like Matthew 5, 6, 7, John... You know, big swaths of John, where he's high priestly prayer and his lecture, you know, that kind of stuff. So his teachings to his disciples. So, um, Number two, multiple choice. Why did Jesus perform miracles in his earthly ministry? To amaze the crowds, to prove his deity and messiahship, to overwhelm his opponents, or to amuse his followers? To amuse his followers. His <laughs> B. His B. Good job. You know, sometimes it's hard to come up with bad answers, <laughs> you know, to be honest. Hi, Amanda, how are you? That's Number three, and this is, of course, multiple choice. How did religious leaders respond to Jesus and his works in Matthew 12? They denied he did miracles. They accepted his authority and worshipped him. They said he did miracles by Beelzebub, or they called the nation to follow him. They said they did miracles by yeah, they accused him of doing them by, do you know what Beelzebub means? It's a name for Satan. Baal-zebub is a compound name. Baal means Lord or Master, and Zebub means flies. So, Lord of the Flies. That's where we get the novel by William, is William Golding or something. Lord of the Flies, you know, the story about the boys on the island. That's Beelzebub, and it has to do with, if you're Lord of the Flies, where do flies congregate? Well, that and excrement. So, it's a... It is a, um, uh, a name for Lord of Excrement, so human excrement. So it's not a very pleasant name. It's, a, it's pretty, pretty nasty, but that is, that is the idea, okay? Uh, multiple choice. Which of the following was not an aspect or result of Christ's death? Impeccability. Yeah, impeccability. What does that mean? What is impeccability? The idea that uh, Christ could not sin. Correct. There's peccability and impeccability. The idea that could Christ have sinned if he was tempted? Was he tempted? Could he have actually sinned or was it impossible for him to sin? That's impeccability versus peccability. It has nothing to do with his, his death. It's just one of the words that I could... All right, the rest are straight from the book. Okay, short answer. Provide one of the six proofs listed in the book of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to give all six to you and you can tell me if your paper in front of you listed one of them. Number one, the empty tomb. <clears throat> Number two, the shape of the linen wrappings. The resurrection appearances. A transformed disciples. Observing the first day of the week as worship. And existence of the church. Did anybody have something else? I mean, he put the disciples of Jesus went from uh, cowering in a house. Tr- transformed disciples. Transformed disciples. Yeah, that works. Yeah. These are all bonus points. It's all bonus. There's no... You can't get anything wrong. It's all just extra cream on top. So write the number correct and pass it in out of zero. So congratulations. Um, we are, if you open your books, uh, your workbooks, we're on 5.3, Teaching of Christ's Deity. I, w- I want to briefly walk through some of this material. I'm going to skip a lot because um, what I also want to spend some time doing today, in fact, <clears throat> I'm wondering if we should do this first. Let's get through this, and then we will stop after the deity of Christ and talk about our project. Because if you look at your uh, assignment sheet, what you'll notice, my goal was to have a Project 1 due on um, the 12th. 
And I would say this about the unit one quiz. If you are familiar with the material that I gave you in the regular quizzes, you'll do just fine, okay? It's not gonna be radically different from those kinds of questions, okay? So no worries. If you're familiar with what, I've been, what we've been doing, go back and look at, that's why I gave you the quizzes back. You can go back and look at them. Um, I, in fact, I could give you these back if you just hang on. I'll make a note of the, the grades. I'll give them back to you before we leave today. But our goal today is to finish up um, all the way to Temptation of Christ and talk through some of these things. But I really want to talk about our, our, our project as well. So let's get through this material, then we'll talk about a project. Number 5.3 is where we are in our notes, I believe. Is that where you have yours? And if you um, came in, um, there are some notes there that will add to the very back of your um, your notes. To grab those. Well, some people did. I think uh, okay. Casey grabbed them. Abby, did you grab them? See, Abby did it. We know it's Okay, whatever. Yeah, can we go? It's not the first time you told us. Please. Okay. Um, Teaching on Christ's deity. How do we know Christ is God? Uh, According to the scripture, we see first his names. Uh, He is called God in Hebrews. Um, We see that Hebrews 1, 8, 9 is quoting Psalm 45. Psalm 45 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And notice in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He calls him God. One of the most uh, profound um, references to this is Thomas's, your blank here is confession. Thomas's confession, where he cries out, My Lord and my God. This is a huge, uh, in the context of John, how does John begin? John 1.1 begins with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among men, right? And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came to His own, but His own received Him not. But to as many as received Him, He gave the right to become the sons or the children of God, as many as believed on His name. So we have that in the prologue. And then you skip to the very end of John, and the climax of John is one of the disciples of Jesus crying out what? My Lord and my God, right? So if you do not believe that Jesus is God, how do you deal with that statement? Jesus does not correct him. Jesus does not rebuke him. It's the climax of the whole gospel. How do, how do you work around that? And what, what, if you talk to Jehovah's Witness, who's an Arian, what they'll say is something to the effect of, well, Thomas was probably saying it with like an exclamation, like he was almost like swearing, like saying, oh my God. Like someone might say that. My Lord and my God. Almost like, wow. And I, I, wait a second. You're, you're telling me that Jesus Christ is standing there when someone swears in front of him, taking the Lord's name in vain, and he doesn't do anything, like he doesn't say anything, and he accepts this as worship, that just doesn't make sense. It's a terrible argument, but that's a really profound, very, very good argument for the deity of Christ. Also, keep going. Jesus is called a Lord. David called Messiah Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Yahweh said to my Lord. We see that in Romans 10. If confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 1.10, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. He's also called the Son of God. Um, he claimed to be the Son of God. He also claimed to be the Son of Man, which is uh, very powerful as well. I don't have that here, but that is uh, very powerful. 5.32, his attributes, he is eternal. That's your first. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. He is eternal. Christ, we talked about this in his preexistence, is eternal. Next, he is omnipresent. 
Um, at the end of Matthew, how does, how does Matthew, again, the, the, the way that Hebrew, um, so, so often in, in Hebrew uh, scriptures, in like Old Testament, um, Hebrew writing is, is often done in a chiasm. Are you familiar with an idea of a chiasm? A chiasm uh, is a structure of writing. The, the Greek letter key or chi, you might say, uh, is an X. And so in, often in, um, in, he, in Hebrew writing, the, there's a parallel to the writing. It goes like this. Something to that effect. So that the beginning and the end match. Okay? Then the insides match and the very middle is the most important point. It's called a chiasm. It's a very uh, normal way that uh, the Bible books, often whole books, are chiastic. The book of John is like that. When you see in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, the Word was God, then how does Thomas declare that my Lord and my God? Those are parallel, right? And often the very middle of a book or the very middle of something, you'll find a very something important. Matthew's similar. How does Matthew begin? He's, uh, uh, what is Jesus' name? You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew? Lo, I am what? With you always. It's the same kind of thing. There's a parallel here where he says, God with us. Jesus at the very end says, I am with you always. So it's a, it's a, it's a connection there. Um, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus says in John 14. In Ephesians 3, Christ may dwell in your hearts. He is omnipresent. He is with us now. Um, uh, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. There is a presence. There is something that Christ is more than just at the right hand of the Father. He is with us. He is with us now. Uh, next, omniscient. Omniscient it means all, uh, all-knowing. He knows all things. We see this. Uh, John 2.25, there is no need anyone to testify a man, for he knew what was in man. Now, there is an interesting little uh, difficulty here or, or um, challenge about Jesus' omniscience. And that has to do that he actually says that, um, uh, that he does not know the hour or the day in which he will come. So there is that in which he says he, that only the Father knows that. And, and, I, and, and several people have resolved this issue different ways. The basic thing is that he is, that that is something that he is chosen to give, that the, the Father has in his um, purview, but not in the Son. I, I don't exactly understand all of that, but I think that that, is, that has been talked about quite a bit. That is the only thing that I think is, is omniscience might be um, one of those areas where, like, for example, in his humanity, when Jesus in his humanity, he gets tired. So is he omnipotent? Uh, like we're going to see, yes, he has all authority, but in the same sense, he also is a man, and in his humanity gets tired and must eat, and things like that. So we see that in that part of the, um, the, the mystery of the hypostatic union of his humanity and his deity inter- in the same person, right? If you look at his uh, omniscience here, he gives several examples in the scripture. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, Jesus knows about the woman at the well. Um, Jesus knows his own betrayal is coming. Uh, 
Anyway, there, there's several examples of that. Omnipotence, all of his authority. He has authority to forgive sins, something only God can do. He has all authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is, is the one who has all authority, all power. He's the one who can forgive sins. He is next immutable. I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E. Immutable. That means he does not change. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is an attribute of Christ, when, I mean of God, uh, of deity. God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Uh, therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob, from Malachi 3. He is life. Jesus is not like this. He is life. He is life. Uh, in him is life. The life was the light of men. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is who Jesus is in his being. In his, I think the subcategory is what is it? His person, um, his attributes, sorry. Next, his works, he is creator. We see this in John 1 3, all things were made through him, and in Colossians 1, by him all things were created. So Jesus is the Word who created all things, he is the sustainer. Colossians 1 16 and 17, he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He carries all things forward to their appointed course. He is the forgiver of sins. God says, I, even I, am the one who blots out your transgressions. And you notice that when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, how do people respond to him? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? He's a miracle worker. He's a miracle worker. How about his worship? This is fundamental uh, to his deity that... Only God should be worshipped. Only God should be worshipped. Angels should not be worshipped. Men should not be worshipped. Only God should be worshipped. Therefore, as we see in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 10, fear the Lord your God, worship Him only. So Jesus even says in Matthew 4, you should only worship the Lord your God. And Peter refused worship. But in John 5... Jesus says that he needs to be honored and worshipped just as the Father is honored. All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And we see this um, in 2 Corinthians 13, the equality of the Trinity. Also, the worship due to Yahweh is given to Jesus in Psalm 8 and Matthew 21. The blind man worshipped Jesus, John 9. Jesus did not reject his worship. Jesus is Lord and glory is ascribed to him, and everything in Philippians chapter 2 will worship him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the deity of Christ and his worship. Um, with the result of the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, we have both truths. We have this hypostatic union, which we talked about a little bit last week. Let's talk about chapter 6 for just a minute. And... Uh, I want to get into this. I'm not sure if we're going to get into chapter 7 yet. The hypostatic union is defined as the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, came and took to himself a human nature and remains forever undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person forever. That is, they are the two natures of Christ, inseparably united without mixture or loss or separate identity. He is not a godly man or a manly deity. He is God-man. He has two, number one, distinct natures. Two distinct natures, humanity and deity. They, not, they have no mixing, mixture. 
no mixture or intermingling. As I said, he was not a divine man or a manly God. And he is one person. So you have the two natures, one person. Um, the problem of the hypostatic union, you have a couple of views here that are, that are tr- problematic. The first is the Calvinistic view. There are uh, Calvin, who is a famous and very influential theologian in Geneva, taught that, quote, the two natures are united without any transfer of attributes. Okay. And then you have the Lutheran view, which is the divine natures are extended to the human nature. Extended. Um, Look at this for a second. I was thinking I had more in my notes about this than what I gave you there. Um, One second. Um... Yeah. The Lutheran view, let's talk about that for a second. Um, The ubiquity of the human body of Christ, that is the omnipresence of the divine nature, has been transferred to the human body of Christ, and the human nature of Christ is physically present in the elements of communion. This is kind of this, they have a strange view of communion called consubstantiation. Um, Consubstantiation. That, if you're familiar with Catholic theology believes in what's called transubstantiation, which is the belief that when you take the elements, they actually do convert into the actual body and blood of Christ. Lutherans believe it, although the elements themselves do not change, the person partakes of Christ who is in, with, under, and by the bread and cup. It has to do with their perspective on the humanity of Christ. I would not worry too much about this other than their view of the deity of Christ, humanity of Christ, and its connection to one another extends to their understanding of the Eucharist or the understanding of the Lord's Supper. When we get down to it, this is a mystery that's difficult for us to fully grasp being human beings and not glorified yet. I think even if we're glorified, perhaps it'll be a difficult thing to grasp fully. But we see the results of the hypostatic union in that Christ, if not man, could not die for man. And Christ, if not God, cannot die for all men. So in his redemption, he is both man and God, and by being man and God, is able to die for the sins of all men. Two, there's this eternal priesthood. Because he is a man, he can act as a human priest. And as God, he can be an eternal priest. And in Hebrews, it's called the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Kenosis and hypostatic union, what did Christ empty himself? We talked about that last week, of made himself of no reputation, meaning emptied himself. He did not empty himself, not of his deity, because he was on, his deity was on display throughout his ministry on earth. He did not empty himself of his deity. He surrendered the independent exercise of some of his relative and transitive attributes. He did not surrender the absolute attributes in any sense. He was always perfectly holy, just, merciful, truthful, and faithful. Which is, I believe, I like the way this is said. He surrendered the independent exercise of some of his relative and transitive attributes, which works to resolve this question, what I brought up earlier from Matthew 24, which is how he could say something like, of the day and hour no one knows except my Father. So Christ took to himself an additional nature. 
That is, the emptying was not by subtraction, but by addition. The emptying was taking on additional nature, the human nature with its limitations. His deity was never surrendered. It was a limiting and emptying of rights and privileges of deity, humbling himself. That's the kenosis, okay? Now, let's stop for a moment. I know I've blitzed through this. Um, let's talk a little bit about your project. Okay. Your project, let's look at the instructions I gave you, and then I want you to just walk through, and I want to put on the board what would be some of the arguments you would make. Okay, so it's, what I have for you, project one, a defense of the deity of Christ. Okay. Now, I want you to write a three to five page double space paper defending the deity of Christ against the heresy of Arianism. Now, Arianism teaches what? That Did you get a chance to look at any stuff I gave you? Christ is not. He uh, was created by God. Yeah, Arianism teaches that Christ is not pre-existent, right? And they teach that Christ was created. All right. Um, some teach of him like a, like a lesser God rather than God himself, right? God in the flesh, uh, that he's some sort of lesser God. They might call him a deity, but not to the same extent that the the Lord, the Father is. Um, Arianism emphasizes the humanity of Christ and downplays the deity of Christ. Okay. So how, what are the arguments? And this is, what I, this is what I want to talk about. Maybe this is a good place for you need to take some notes here because I want to walk through what are some of the arguments that you would make uh, for the deity of Christ and um, to... And you don't have to make all of these arguments, but you want to be able to think through some of these and pick a couple or three. Perhaps when you write your paper, in your introduction, you'll say something like, you know, um, the deity of Christ uh, is under attack from Arianism. Arianism defines or denies the deity of Christ because it believes this. Um, however, the scripture reveals Christ's deity fully in these areas. Maybe you list three to four areas. If you list three to four proofs and then take three to four paragraphs, one paragraph per proof, and then have a conclusion, that's a great paper. Okay? Uh, let me give you a little bit of my philosophy of writing. I believe in clarity over flowery language. Okay? I think that the most difficult skill of writing is clear thinking. So if it, I, I say it this way, that good writing is much more like architecture and less like interior design. Okay? So I, w I would much rather you have very simple words, plain writing, and clear thinking than look at the thesaurus and come up with some cool, impress me, $5 million words. Okay? Um, the, the funny part is often when the people use the $5 million words, they don't use them properly. <laughs> so that's the funny part. Uh, so don't, don't, don't be that guy. Um, I know the girls wouldn't do it, so don't be that guy. Um, what are some of the arguments you would use for the deity of Christ? Where would you start? And what would you, what would you say? And, and wh what do you think is the most 
um, is significant, and then let's work our way through this and, and help your help your teammates out here, help your classmates out. What would you say? Where are we going to start? John one one seems like okay. So John one one, uh, and you could say the the scriptural teaching, right? Scriptural evidence, and you might call this direct evidence, like direct. Uh, direct teaching, right? Direct doctrinal teaching. So John 1.1, 1, 1, any other verses? The, right, one fourteen. Sure. Yeah. Um, right, Jesus' claims about himself. Well, that might be a second one. Let me just... So we have direct doctrinal teaching, so we could even put scriptural evidence here. I'm going to put... I'm going to give you one here. Jesus' claims for himself. Can you think of any of his claims that would have significance here? Do you remember what verse that is? John. Oh, close. John 8, 58. You're in the right book. Before Abraham was, I am. Right? And then what happens? The Jews rise up to, to stone him. Right, so they know what he's saying. So Jesus claims about himself, uh, scriptural evidence, direct teaching. Yeah. Uh, just a real quick question about the Arians and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Sure. Do they hold the whole Bible to be true, or do they? Yes. Have, do they read an edited version? Oh yeah. Well, their version of the Bible, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses use something called the New World Translation, okay. um, and it is a uh, is a terrible translation of the Bible. In fact, uh, I, I, I read a story that said that they were actually like, sued for fraud over this translation. And some of the translators were brought on the stand and given like, some Greek to read, and they had no idea what they were even looking at. So it's, it's, it's bad. It's, it's done with a slant. But um, you can still lead someone to the gospel using their Bible. They don't have, they've only basically tinkered with John 1, 1, Colossians 1, 16. Right? So it's, so we, there's not really any verses we just steer away from simply because it's trying to refute that. So. I, I wouldn't worry about that. No, I, I mean, that's a good thing. I didn't, I didn't have the, the argument is not to lead a Jehovah's witness to Christ. So if it was, that was, if that was your project, I would say then yes, I would, I would steer away from John 1, 1 and Colossians 1, 16 because they are familiar with those and they have arguments for why those verses don't quote unquote mean what they say they mean. Right. So, but we're not, that's not our argument. Our, our argument is how would you, how would you defeat our, 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 our Arianism? Um, with, with, a, with the scripture. Okay. okay. What other evidences would you point to for the deity of Christ? Um, we talked about a bunch of them just now. Something pop up in your mind. Uh, Thomas's exclamation. If mm-hmm. he hadn't sworn, the Lord would have the first so, the, so I'd say the worship, right? Worship of Christ. Right. The fact that Christ was worshipped and you're only supposed to worship God, right? So, he receives worship. He does not rebuke those who worship him. Great. Um, Fulfilling prophecy. Okay. The Old Testament prophet, you know, when they had the prophecies, they referred to 
Yeah, especially like Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, you have um, the prophecies talking about the Lord. I saw the Lord. Wait, is it um, Isaiah 6? Um, I think Isaiah 6 is referenced later in the New Testament. He says that he spoke of... um, when, when he saw his glory, I'm trying to remember. There are some there are some connections like that where you see, where we talk about the glory of Christ being seen or whatever, and it's referencing a Old Testament passage that is using the word Yahweh or Lord. So it's it's identifying Christ with Lord with the same Yahweh, right? I I have to I have to go back and look at that to get you an exact reference, but I. I could look it up here. What else? What else would you do? This is just open, open discussion to kind of help you guys out. Hebrews one. Hebrews one. What what context? Of Hebrews one. Um, particularly verse eight. Okay. It's a pretty direct statement. But to the Son, He says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness, mm. a scepter of your kingdom." That's good. Um, and then prior to that, of course, He. <clears throat> Lays out the uh, who the son is and refutes here again the Jehovah's Witness claim that he's the archangel Michael. To which of the angels did he ever say? There's a rhetorical question there. You are my son today. I've begotten you. To none of them, obviously. That's the rhetorical. That's the answer. And then uh, verse six, he says, "Let all the angels of God worship." Mm. Worship. Yeah. Very good. What else? Casey, you were going to say something? Regarding things to avoid, um, would, would begotten, the only begotten Son of God, be something to avoid or embrace as far as um, making the case? So there are, two, there are two things that are difficult if you don't know how to handle them when it comes to the deity of Christ. One is only begotten, which we talked about a little bit. Um, and the other, does anybody know what the other one is? Um, it's out of Colossians. It's the term firstborn. Okay. Um, in this term, firstborn, if you just do the etymology, or if you just break it down into its component parts, you have firstborn. First means first. Born means born. So therefore... Christ was the first born, come into existence. Now, wait a second. The Bible teaches that there was never a time when the Son was not. Right? He always is. He always was. He is, the, he is the eternal one. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, according to the book of Revelation. So, this is, what does this mean that he is the firstborn of all creation? Right? Yes, so there are, two, there are two meanings to the word firstborn. The first has to do with actual uh, birth order. And the second has to do with rank. As in the primary one or the preeminent. Maybe a better word would be preeminent. Uh, if I can spell this right. I'm just going to scribble so you can't tell how I misspelled it. Preeminent one, right? 
This has to do with his preeminence. And if you look at the context of Colossians 1, the constant context is all about his rank, his preeminence. His firstborn rank has to do with him being the first, the, the, and he is the, and in fact, this idea of firstborn has to do with his, believe it or not, his resurrection and that he is the firstborn of the dead. Said later, he's the first, he is the, the one who is like, we are going to be resurrected in glorified bodies. One day God will resurrect all men uh, who have trusted him and give us eternal life. Uh, he is the, the, the first one out the door. He is the firstborn from the dead. And that terminology can trip you up if you're not familiar with it. You could say, wait a second, Christ is the firstborn. I guess he came into existence. That's not what it's saying. Um, only begotten just means, in fact, the, the traditional um, the, the, theological way of describing this is this called, um, he is, he is uh, the son is proceeding from the father. I think that's how it's described. The idea of the son, the eternal, or is it spirit? <laughs> I get confused. There is some confusing arguments. The idea is that the, the son derived, there is a rank and order within the Trinity. So the Trinity, you have father. This is not theology proper, obviously. Son and spirit. And the father ranks in authority. He has authority over the son. Whatever the son does, whatever the father tells him to do. And this is actually very, very important. Are the persons of the Trinity equal? The answer is yes. I don't want you to fall into heresy because you're thinking about it. <laughs> Wait a second. Yes, they are co-equal persons of the Trinity. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are co-equal. They are, they are, they are equal in their person. They are not more important, but are, do they have the same function within the Trinity? The answer is no. They have their own unique place. The Spirit speaks of the Son. The Spirit goes forth from the Son. You know, the Son comes and does the will of the Father. And this is so important because what other relationships do we have in our lives that involve subordination but equality? How about marriage? Right? If you say the wife is to submit to her husband, you are not saying that a wife is inferior to her husband. You are saying she has a role to play in the marriage. So the son submits to the father does not mean the son is inferior to the father. He has a role to play in the, in the Trinity. Another, or not, this is again, not a talk about the Trinity, but when you talk about uh, Arianism, Trinity probably will come up at some point. One of the wonderful things about the Trinity as a way to help us think is that um, God has always ha has always been relational. Okay. Even before, does, does God need anything? I ask that question. Does God need anything? Does God need us in order to do anything? No. So he didn't need to create. There was no necessity for God to create. Okay. God is exactly uh, perfect as he is, but he chose to create out of his wisdom. So even prior to the creation of the world, if you can think prior to time, if that even works in your brain, prior to time, eternity past, as we call it, before the world came into existence, before that moment when God said, let there be light. Okay. The father, son, and spirit existed 
in perfect harmony with each other and showing perfect love to one another. There's perfect love and perfect harmony in the Trinity, in the Godhead, as we describe it. So there is relationship even prior to... God didn't need to make us in order to have a relationship, in order to show his attributes. He is perfectly able to have relationship with himself, if that makes sense. So the Trinity is a fascinating concept. We're not really getting too deep into that. This is not a theology proper class. This is a Christology class. But um, you do need to understand that there is equality within the Trinity, and there also is subordination and service and rank okay i talked for a long time what else what else do you guys would you talk about if you're talking about the deity of christ what would you need to address as um what would you need to address yes so uh, just, just so I'm, I'm clear now the arians that they say that christ was not pre-existent do they deny that he's god at all yeah well okay there's a couple different and i'm not sure how, how what your um article says but um there's a couple different takes. One is that he's a lesser God and that he is a, he is a kind of deity. Um, but that it's like a, a demigod, sort of like he's a, a subordinate God. He's like the, the biggest or the, the highest created thing. Um, how would you deal with that argument? What, what verse would you turn to? How about Colossians 1.16? By him, how many things were created? All things were created. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So everything made. So there's the created world. And there's God. And God created the world. Nothing in the created world was not made by God. Nothing that was made was not made by God. And God, Christ, made all these things. So if Christ was made... Where would he be? Is he part of the created world or is he part of God? If he, had made it, if he was made, he'd be, he would be part of the created world. and no longer, He could not make all things because he can't make himself. So, it, so what, how the Jehovah's Witnesses deal with that? Well, they insert the word other. They say all other things were created by him. There's no reason to insert that word. It's not in the original language. It's just inserted because it interferes with their theology. Could you also use the argument of the yeah, immutability of God for um, Arianism is because if they hold that he is God uh, or a lesser God then if he was created there's a state of him not being existent yeah 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 so the same yesterday today forever absolutely yeah um, uh, you, you need to say something about the humanity of Christ because um, how his humanity does not necessitate his, does not um, rule out his deity. Okay? Because an Arian will make much of the, um, the parts of Scripture that talk about Jesus having to sleep or being hungered, Right? So you need to mention this, and that does not in any way um, disprove his deity. It is, it is his humanity and his deity both are true. It's the hypostatic union on display, right? Yes, sir? Do you think we should actually, like, 
Like, would you suggest making a whole paragraph just on that? Or um, I, I don't know. It, it might need to be. I just think it needs to be. Uh, um, I, 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 if I, okay, let me think about that a second. I think probably what's coming to my mind is that it would be more like something you would address in your introductory paragraph, maybe, as why do Arian, why does Arianism teach that Jesus is um, not God uh, because of the focus on the humanity of Christ to the neglect of the deity of Christ in Scripture? They are unbalanced in their perspective. Okay. And I wouldn't spend, because the humanity of Christ is something that, it's not necessarily the proof of his deity. It's just, it's something that they're going to focus on. If you're going to write a paper on this, I would suggest at least addressing that. It says here, they basically attack his humanity as a result of, as a byproduct of him being a created creature. So it's just kind of part of their... Right, right. It's, it's, this is how someone who's a Jehovah's Witness, somebody who has this perspective... And really today, the only Aryans out there are Jehovah's Witnesses I, that I'm aware of, that big enough group. There might be some cults, you know, that would consider themselves uh, theologically Aryan, uh, following Arius. But um, I'm not aware of any other than really Jehovah's Witnesses. But if you talk to them, they can be very, um, very persuasive is too strong a word. They're not persuasive. It's just they, they have they have they have answers that they have written down in a little book, okay. And if you if you bring them to a verse, they have an answer for that verse, and they have and they'll take you all over the place. Um, and your your main your main friend in this kind of discussions uh, in a, in, is is the whole of Scripture, the whole argument of Scripture, not just grabbing a little snippet of verse here, or a snippet of verse here, and taking it out of context, but understanding the whole argument of scripture. I would even go back to what I was saying earlier about uh, Matthew chapter one, the names of Christ. Okay. I mean, think about that. The names of Christ. Have we talked about that yet? Not really, but the names. So, um, John, uh, Matthew chapter one, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins. What does Jesus means? It means Jehovah saves, Right. And if his name means Jehovah saves, and the reason for giving him that name is because he will save, what's that saying about him? That he is Jehovah. Further, we have Emmanuel, God with us. And at the end of Matthew, he says, lo, I am with you always. So we have the names of Christ. We have really everything in your book there. You could, you could go through that and see those again and look through those um, examples. We talked about worship. Um, his names, his claims, scriptural evidence. What, what, question, what questions do you have? Okay, I want to make sure we don't shut this down early. Yes? Should we mention more of the history of Arianism? Nah, not necessary. It really, we're working on their arguments. So I don't really want a historical background uh, of where they come from. Um, you could mention uh, Arius if you want to. It's not, it's not necessary. You do need to say something about what they believe, their basic argument, which is G that, that Jesus is created and that he is not uh, the same as the Lord God, and, or he is not Jehovah God, right? That is their, 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 their belief. And so you're going to take biblical support, Jesus claims for himself, Scriptural evidence, 
uh, the fact that he was worshipped, Old Testament prophecy, and the names of Christ, you know, whatever. Three or four or five paragraphs, maybe, max, and then a conclusion. That's all really you need is an introduction. Your proofs are, um, when you write a paragraph for me, what I want you to do is give me a good topic sentence, you know, um, something like, the scriptural evidence overwhelmingly points to Christ being deity. <laughs> First, uh, John 1.1 1, 1 describes Christ as being God. You know, later he is described as coming in flesh. How could he come in flesh if he did not preexist? You know, Jesus is, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Jesus' claims prove that he is deity or whatever. You know, you have these. So give me a good topic sentence and then prove it. Topic sentence, then prove it. And uh, that will be very good. Okay. And I'm sure you'll, do, you'll all do great. This is an exercise for you to learn, okay? This is not... Um, uh, hopefully, hopefully, this is an experience where I, I hope I don't learn too much. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope that I, I'm, you know, that you're giving me information that that's, that's stuff that stuff that I'm aware of. I, if you sell, if you're telling me things, I'm like, oh, I've never heard this before. That that's not. A, I'm not asking you to be um, uh, super creative and go out on a limb and come up with some crazy like explanations that are way out there. I'm not asking for you to be innovative. Okay. Um, the idea is I need you to to think biblically about these things. Okay. Now, if you have a crazy, innovative idea, I guess you can. I'd run it by me before you, uh, before you write the, the paper. Yes, sir. So, in this paper, do you, do you only want us to state the arguments for Christ, or could we also disprove the arguments against the deity of Christ? Or oh, so like disprove their arguments? Yeah. Like that, you, have, that's a great idea. Yeah, you can do both. You could say you could say their arguments fail. Uh, if you do that, you need to quote. Something I gave you, you need to be able to not straw man them. That's the only thing. Okay. You know what straw manning is? Now you say, okay, like, you know, <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, I won't straw man. No problem. What's straw man? Okay. Well, straw manning is, is you create an argument that the person who makes that argument would not agree that that is their argument. Okay. So if I, if I said um, um, that Arians do not believe, they believe that Jesus, I can't even think of a good example. You need to be able to, to describe what they believe so that they would agree with how you present it, okay? Straw manning means you build up a fake argument that really isn't an argument at all, and you tear it down. You don't and, like M&Ms on your pizza, right? M&Ms are terrible. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're just terrible example, but you, you, you yeah, set up a bad argument to make another argument. Yeah, you set it, you're setting up an argument. You're making their argument sound stupid because the way you're presenting it is stupid. But they would never say it that way, right? Yes. It can and quite often it's even more subtle than that. The straw man argument, the person who's uh, employing it will use some of the arguments that his opponent uses but he won't use the strongest arguments. Right. Mm -hmm. He'll use incomplete arguments, or he won't even, uh, or he won't, he or she won't use arguments that counter his own arguments. Right. So we, we like to do what's called Iron Man arguments, which means it's, it's the opposite. Yeah. You want to take their strongest arguments, 
or be able to, what, what I try to pr practice when I debate people, I don't ever, I don't do public debates, I'm not a debater, but when I talk to people and, 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 and con confront them, <laughs> is, that, is that I always try to say, now correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is, and then I, I say something, and I give them the opportunity to come back to me and say, no, no, I don't mean that, I mean this. Because you, you realize that our arguments are nuanced and so are other people's arguments. Often there's nuance and you don't want to be misunderstanding or worse, you don't want to intentionally be watering down their argument so then you can destroy it. Okay, that's, that's cheating. That's, okay, obviously there are other things, other logical things we're not going to do. We're not going to have red herrings or whatever, you know, bad, bad logic. But I guess what I'm saying is you can disprove what they say, as long as you, you don't just, my main thing is I want you to defend the deity of Christ, not just um, down, you know, not just destroy their arguments, but actually build an argument. You can say, maybe if you had one thing downplaying them and like four positives for you, that would be okay. But I don't want to like four negatives and one positive for you, if that makes sense. You could almost mix them though, right? Like you could say, the Aryans say this and it's wrong, and then like because of this, and then give scriptures based on... Yeah, to be honest, if I were if I were writing a paper, I would not start with the wrong view. I would, like I said, I like to start with uh, um, Christ, for example, if say Jesus' claims about his own life, about his own deity, prove his deity. Um, and because Jesus does not lie, he is telling the truth and he, whatever, whatever the Arians claim this, I like, like three sentences down in my paragraph, the Arians see these verses and they claim, they interpret them this way. So they say Thomas's worship of Christ was a, was a profanity and not an actual worship. Uh, but this is absurd because of blah, blah, blah. You might put that in that paragraph, but you wouldn't lead with that. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that might be like a, you're, you're acknowledging an argument against your argument but you are then dealing with it. Yeah. I hope I'm giving you help. Yeah. That makes sense. You want to lead with your, your arguments. You want to build a positive case. Again, this is to help you kind of solidify in your mind um, what the scripture teaches us. I mean, his, his behavior, his act, Jesus's acts of healing. And I think of him calming the sea, like his, his miracles and, 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 and all of the things he did forgiving sins. These are things only God does, you know. The, the fact that the people around him thought he was claiming to be God, you know. Uh, why, who, who does he think he is, you know? Claiming that he, you're not 30 years old and you were around when, Mo, you know, when Abraham was around, you know. Pff, um, yeah. I read Paul Lynn say that uh, there were no recorded healing of the blind in the Old Testament, and only Jesus healed the blind, even right. after um, the Spirit came to mm -hmm. the disciple. Yeah, you have the, you have the lame, right? We just covered that on Sunday. But that's probably true, um, because that is one of the things in Isaiah, it says to open the eyes of the blind, proclaim um, acceptable your voice. Is that, is that Isaiah? Uh, eyes blind um well psalm 146 8 the lord opens the eyes of the blind isaiah 29 the eyes of the blind shall see isaiah 35 then the eyes of the blind shall be opened the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped yeah so what does jesus do he opens the eyes of the blind right 
So there's a lot, there's a lot of different directions you could go with this. Whatever you want to do would be awesome. Um, I would spend the majority of my time on this project and I wouldn't worry too much about the quiz, the unit one quiz. I know you asked about that earlier and studying for that. I think if you do this project, you will be fine on the quiz. The quiz is going to be review, you know, of the material for this, for this stuff. Okay. Other questions? Okay. Um, I want to see if there's anything I needed to touch on about the rest of this uh, stuff. Next week we will cover the last couple parts of this uh, Christological section. I wish we could spend more time. I really hate that it's only a third of the class. We'll do the offices of Christ, present ministry of Christ, and future work of Christ. Actually, we'll probably talk about temptation of Christ also. Um, uh, let's see. You could even talk about Christ's words. The fact, I mean, this is fascinating. In, John, in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, especially when he says, You have heard that it was said by those of old, but I say to you, like, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? That he can, he can rewrite the words of God? Because sometimes Jesus, when he says, you've heard it was said, but I say to you, sometimes he makes it stricter. Other times he says, no, not, not that strict. <laughs> it's different. And so he is giving us interpretation of the word, um, the, the heart behind the word, not just... The um, how they were interpreting, but the true interpretation. Um, so, I don't know if I have that many blanks. Do I have a lot of blanks for you guys to fill in for the rest of this stuff? There's a good number. There's a good number. In chapter seven, you have a bunch. I guess I didn't write all these down, but we'll do them next time. We'll do them next time. Do you have any questions? Before we close it down. Okay. You are going to talk about impeccability and temptation. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's part of our schedule for next week. I'm not really going to get into the life of Christ as much. I think we've talked about that a little bit. We've talked about the words of Christ, the works of Christ, um, rejection. Um I'll just leave you with this thought, is that as you read the Gospels, I want you to understand the the miracles of Christ are not just um, parlor tricks or meeting a physical need of someone. Okay, It's not just like the guy was blind, now he can see. Awesome. There, there, are, there's, there's theological meaning behind everything he does. There's, there's, he's doing, like when he stills the sea, okay, um, if you, as you read your Bible, you understand how a Jewish person thought about the sea, okay? The sea, if you read your Old Testament and the, and the prophets, every time the sea is mentioned, it's mentioned with chaos and with um, being like, like tumult, you know, being tossed around and, and the 
and the uncertainty of the sea and the, and the, you know, you, it's dangerous and it's, it's not something that's really pleasant. The sea is, is, is scary. Um, yeah. What does Christ do to the sea? He calms it. He comes out and with his voice, peace be still. He calms only God speaks. And calms the sea. Like the, the calming of the chaos. I mean, you're talking like very dramatic. And then the very next, in both, in both times that miracle is given, or maybe two out of three times, I don't know. The very next miracle is when the demoniac comes out from Gadara. Right? And he's got the demons in him. And he falls down. And what do they do to Jesus? They worship him. And they say, you know, what are we to do with you, Jesus? And, how, and Jesus casts out those demons. Calms chaotic, demonic forces, chaotic, worldly forces. Jesus is bringing order to chaos and the chaos comes from sin and all these sin and curse things. So blood and, and, and cripples and people unable to use their hands, like they can't work, they can't do things. And Jesus restores that. You think about all these things are very filled. They're filled with theological significance. They're not just people getting better. It's, there's a lot of real there's stuff going on there that's more deep than you would think. So I want to kind of leave that with you as you um, work on your project, and, and hopefully this will be a, a real encouraging thing for you, okay? All right, thank you very much uh, for your attention. I, sorry I went a couple minutes over. Hope you have a great night, and we will uh, see you Sunday.